just want to uh, say welcome, uh, whether this is your first time or first time in a long time, or you've been with us for many, many, many years. I'm Pastor Chris. It's so great to see so many smiling and awake faces, right? Everyone's awake today. Yes, awake. Yeah, yeah. No yawning out there in the back. But anyway, um, we're glad that you're here. And also, everybody that's online, too. Just super grateful you can tune in, and um, and I had a, a wonderful time. Um, I miss you all last week. Um, I know you were in good hands with Pastor Brian, who preached a great message last week. I was able to listen to that this week, and um, and but I do have to say I was enjoying my time on the beach. Man, 80 degrees, water 79. It's like super nice, but it's nice to get away, recharge, come back, and be energized for the this next season. And um. And so if you've been with us, we're in this series, we're in week five of six, that is called The Bachelorette. And, um, and so we're in week five, we're talking about the book of Ruth, and we're kind of going through it chapter by chapter. It's a short little book in the Old Testament, but it's really packed, it's jam-packed with lots of great stuff. And, um, and so this, this uh, episode, we're in episode five, is called Cliffhanger, because there is always one in any reality TV show, or any TV show that maybe you watch. But... Um, and so we've been unpacking this kind of theme, uh, kind of tailoring with the story of Ruth, of, of uh, not just the story of a, of a lady or two women that lived thousands of years ago, but how the reality is we see ourselves in the story. We are Ruth. We are Naomi. We are Boaz. And not only are we in the story, but Jesus is in the story. This is a foretelling thousands of years before Jesus of what was to come, what God is doing, what God's mighty plan was. Um, so we're kind of talking a bit about the, the whole reality TV scene and stuff. And I know Pastor Brian last week shared his favorite reality TV was the NFL. Go fly, Eagles fly. In that regard, I got a good laugh out of that because we had talked on the phone before that. But um, anyway, um, but I thought I'd start with a good question. Um, and, and this kind of pertains to the whole TV series type stuff. Is um, um, Do you ever think about what goes on behind the scenes of reality TV shows, or really any TV show, to be exact. Have you ever thought about, like, what you watch is not actually what's happening? <laughs> like, there's, there's stuff that has happened before you see the final product. Um, and, and so I was just thinking about this, that question. I ponder lots of weird questions. And um, I thought I'd do a little bit of research. Um, thank God for Google, right? And you find out lots of great answers, some that may be true, some that may not be true. But um, I wanted to just do a little research about, like, what goes on behind some of our favorite shows? Like, what happens before we see the show on TV? Well, I don't know if you know this, and I know it doesn't, it's not absolutely like reality TV, but Jeopardy. Anybody a Jeopardy fan? you know, been maybe watching it for years. Um, did you know that on Jeopardy, first the contestants, they never meet the host beforehand. Before they actually go on stage for it to be filmed, they never meet the host, they're never, and, and then if you get on Jeopardy, you're told to bring five changes of clothes in case you win. You know why? Because they tape things one after the other. Yeah, it's not like over the, you know, you watch it over weeks. Well, guess what? They tape things one after the other. So you bring five changes of clothes. So it's like five different, you're not wearing the same thing all the time. So kind of interesting, right? You never think about that. Um, some of your favorite HGTV home makeover shows. The house that they're walking into is not really the person's house. Most of the time it's not. It's a lie. It's a lie. They lie to you. So, um, yeah, so just hold on to that one. But um, uh, any um, normal reality TV show, so whether like, you're like, you're talking about Survivor or 
one of those types of shows, did you know that they actually record about 300 hours worth of footage? 300, on average, 300 hours worth of footage that then they cut down into the episodes that you watch. There's lots and lots of editing. Um, and anybody ever watch the show Alone? That's kind of reality TV. So it's about like these people that they get dropped in the middle of nowhere and they have to survive by themselves. And um, with bears and things attacking like the Canadian wilderness in the winter, you know, all the things of your nightmares. Um, but people sign up for this, and there's not just a couple that sign up for this, but you, did you know every season of this show alone, 10,000 people apply to do that. 10,000 people are totally out of their minds, <laughs> right? I mean, like a million dollars, like, okay, I don't know. And just like, what, the lottery was like something billion last night, right? So, but anyway, 10,000 people do that. Um, and most reality TV shows, um, you know, there's always like a plot line, whether it's like The Bachelorette, whatever, a Survivor. Um, the writers actually, after they film those 300 hours, they actually write in their own story of people. And people sign up, like they sign a waiver, they can be used and characterized in any kind of way. They make their own story up about who the villains are, who the heroes are, who, what's going to happen, where the tension is. They write that in and they take certain scenes and footage and they kind of frame it so it's not actually happening while it's unfolding. Um, and it kind of this, like all this kind of shows us that there's, there's often things going on behind the scenes that you don't see. There's things going on behind the scenes that you don't see and that you don't know. That the fact is, there is always an episode before the current episode. There's always an episode before the current episode. And I think not that this just doesn't tie you to TV, it's, it's life, right? There's always an episode, especially when you're talking to people, when you're in certain situations, there's always an episode before the current episode. And, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but have you ever <clears throat> seen someone and maybe you met them the first time, or you know them for a while, and you see them and you've ever wondered, like, I wish I had a life like that, right? Have you ever wondered that? Like, I wish maybe somebody has a career that they actually studied for and they got a degree in, right? They spent those four years of school and they're actually doing what that is. Most people don't, but, and, or maybe they enjoy what they do. Um, or you see somebody that's, that's making a difference in other people's lives, or you see there's a couple together, for 50 years, and you're like, oh my gosh, like how, right? And they, they actually like act like they like each other still, believe it or not, right? Or you meet a content person, or you meet um, a, a, an athlete who's just doing really, really well in, the, in their sport, and, and you look at them, and you're like, I wish I had that, right? Um, but, but the problem is, in any of those situations, what you only see is the current episode, the only thing you see is the current episode. You don't see what went into it. You don't see the years of counseling that took place for the healing to take place. You don't see the hours of work that that person studied and the jobs, that, the millions of jobs that they applied for to land that job. You, you don't see the, the hours on the field and training in the rain and when it hurt that that athlete put in. You don't see the sacrifice sacrifice. And so today, what I want to show you in chapter four of Ruth is, I think, a principle that's, that's true for all of us, and especially when it comes to our relationship with God, is that invitations of God always involve sacrifice. Let that settle in. Invitations of God always involve sacrifice. And I dare to say the opposite, too. If there's an invitation that has absolutely no sacrifice involved, it's probably not of God. It's probably not of God. 
So, so we're going to follow God into this next episode that involves this theme of sacrifice, really, this cliffhanger episode in the book of Ruth. And so uh, the book of Ruth overall, as we've been singing these songs, maybe you've like, made the connection, is this, it, there's this overall theme of redemption. And Brian talked about this last week, this, this theme of, of buying back and really restoring and recovering what was lost and going back to what God's plan is all along. And while people are broken, the world is broken, that God wants to restore us. God wants to redeem relationships. God wants to redeem us and redeem all the physical, real physical situations that we find ourselves in. And so Ruth is this, uh, this woman, this, this Moabite widow. We talked about at the beginning of, of her story and how she undergoes a great loss of her father-in-law and her, her husband. And, and she leaves her hometown, her home country of Moab, to go to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. Like, imagine that. She, she likes her mother-in-law. I don't know if you do. But she likes her mother-in-law and goes to Bethlehem with her. And she turns from her kind of like pagan faith, this worship of these different gods in Moab, to faith in the God of Israel, the God of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so uh, we have to imagine that first, the, these two women, they're widows, and they're traveling back to Bethlehem. And they're also trapped in a culture, and Brian talked about this last week, they're trapped in a culture that really renders them helpless. At the time, if you were a widow, um, especially if you were barren, so there's no note of children yet in this story at all, that, that we have Ruth and she doesn't have any children, so they're a barren widow that, that is written off basically as worthless property. That's what the ancient people thought. That Naomi kind of embodies that, and she feels drained, and she calls herself, well, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, that's what her name means. She says, rename me to Mara, which means bitter. She like embodies that. She feels drained of her meaning and her value. But the thing is, Ruth, Ruth is convinced of a different story. She's convinced of a story that God is writing. And she sees herself, she's the first person in the story, believe it or not, that sees herself as a child of God and acts like it. And what does she do? Well, she sees instead of getting to work, as many women of the time would do, into prostitution, that's what a lot of times widows were forced into, it just so happened that she decided to go and start gleaning from fields in order to get enough food and bring it back to her mother-in-law. And it just so happened that she started to glean in a field belonging to a man named Boaz. Boaz. And Boaz was a man of standing in the community. He was an older man, but he was known well took care of his business, took care of his people. And one thing we have to realize is that Boaz is a person of power in that society. We have to recognize that he has an advantage as a man, especially a man that's well-to-do. And especially when, when Ruth starts taking, you know, gleaning, following behind the harvesters, picking up what the, in the fields the leftover barley and taking that home, uh, we have to imagine that as he sees her, he has a choice. He has a choice. He can exploit her because of his position of power, or he can use his power to empower her. And so Ruth sees that. And we have to see, though, at that point, Boaz, Boaz, on every occasion, he also reveals that he too is Yahweh's child, just like Ruth was doing. Instead, Instead, he acts and responds differently. And, and we find out that Naomi points this out, that, that he's a relative, He's actually a relative. He's related to their family. And because of that, there was this whole process in the law of the time that he had the possibility of redeeming their family, mainly the idea of bringing it back to life. The men in the family had died. 
There's no one to pass on the name, no one to pass on the inheritance. And so just by his relationship, Boaz had that opportunity, known as the kinsman or the guardian redeemer. And so last week, we talked about in chapter 3, this, this weird scene where Boaz is minding his business, has a little meal, and goes to sleep. And uh, while he's doing that, Ruth comes in and goes and lays down at his feet. And he's, so Boaz is minding his business when he's accosted in the middle of the night by Ruth, who comes and follows her mother-in-law's instructions to, to sit there and to wait and to call on him and to, do, to tell him to do what he's supposed to do. And so basically this was a marriage proposal, a weird one. I don't recommend it, but it's a marriage proposal. And she, she, she's doing this, and imagine that. At this time, she's proposing to him. This is crazy. This is backwards, right? And not only that, but she's proposing to him and pointing out to him, you are a kinsman redeemer in our family. And she's presenting to him a truckload of responsibilities that aren't his to worry about in the first place. Very easily, he could have tuned her out and tuned her off, but he didn't. And imagine, Ruth, she becomes the initiator, and Boaz is the responder. And so suddenly, in this little town of Bethlehem, where they are, Ruth is turning things upside down. Women are driving the action, and this prominent man, he finally gets it and begins to embrace Ruth's idea. It's crazy. You, you wouldn't make this stuff up, especially at this time. When people are listening to this, their eyes are open. Like for us, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, it's a good story. And all. But this is, this is mind-boggling. This would never take place. In the end of the chapter, there's this little verse, the verse that I love, where, where Ruth goes back to Naomi after all this has happened, after she's told Boaz about what's taking place, and, and also how that there's someone that's in the way. <laughs> there's another person that's related more closely that deserves to be the kinsman redeemer, the person that would get the inheritance and the person that would, would turn the family back. Um, and so Boaz Boaz had indicated that to Ruth, and Ruth goes back to Naomi, and Naomi's response is this from Ruth 3.18. And Naomi said, wait, my daughter, wait. She just told her to go and do this, but she says, now wait until you find out what happens. For this man will not rest until the matter is settled today. See, we're not told before what Boaz would actually do. And so Boaz, instead of firmly reminding Ruth when she's sitting there, instead of firmly reminding her, well, that's the way things are, and I can't do anything to help you. And here, I'll give you some food, but go on your way. Instead of doing that, we see in this next chapter that Boaz, he's up at dawn. He cancels all business engagements for the day. Imagine this. This is the harvest season. This is the end of the fiscal year. So he's busy. <laughs> he has a lot of things, time-sensitive projects going on. He cancels everything to do what? To go to the town and so uh, when I've read this before, I mean, if you've read the book of Ruth before, if you haven't, don't worry about this, but I used to think this was like the most boring part. It's the part that you kind of skip over and get to the good stuff when, you know, the marriage happens and everybody's happy after, after. But this actually, this is the cliffhanger. This is the suspense. The plot is thickening. It's unpredictable about what could happen. And so Boaz, he wanted to help Ruth. He noticed and realized there was someone else that was more closely related. And so what does he do? He goes to find him. And so we have to realize, though, that Boaz didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. 
That was up to the guy who's more closely related to take that opportunity. That Boaz is a man of power. He could do whatever he wanted. He could probably marry any woman that he wanted at the time. But instead, he wants to do the right thing. And so that's what true sacrifice, that's what we're talking about. True sacrifice first asks, what is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do? And so chapter 4 starts. Meanwhile, Boaz went to the town gate and sat down there. So let me just pause there because the gate is not just like, like your little gate that goes into your house or your fence around. It's not just a point of entry into town, but it's actually like the seat of government. So this was where business transactions took place. You can see all this in the Bible, by the way. If you read through the Bible, things happen at the town gate. Business transactions, it's a platform for dignitaries. It's a pulpit for prophetic messages from, from prophets. It's also a hub for gossip. So everybody hung out, the water cooler, right? Um, and so Boaz, he goes to the town gate, and he has a plan. He wants to assemble a quorum, a group of elders, of town elders, to settle a business transaction for the Elimelech family. The Elimelech family, which is the family that Naomi came from. That's her husband, and, and Ruth is a part of. And so imagine, they're in the full public view, Right? It's just like, like me going up, up to the, the corner of Bridge Street here and like saying, okay, we're going to do a business deal here. You got traffic going by. You got people like, woo, you know, like the whole bottleneck is taking place. Everybody's looking around. And so from here, we watch, just like with all of Bethlehem, what Boaz is going to give up. It's a big scene. And so, so we're going to continue in the passage. I want you to say the next two words with me when we put this up here. Ready? Go ahead, put that scripture up. Finish of verse one. Ready? Just as, remember, just as it happened, just as it happened, all these just as moments we have in our lives, like it just so happened, well, just as the kinsman redeemer, he had mentioned the closer relative, came along, imagine that, right? Imagine that. He goes to the town gate, he just shows up. The Boaz, he says, come over here, my friend. Imagine like his face. He's probably like, whoa, this is kind of good. Like, right? Good timing here. Like, it just so happened. He says this, go over here. Come, my friends, sit down. And so he went over and sat down. So the very person Boaz is looking for shows up. And what does Boaz call him? What's our English word? What does he call him? Friend. He calls him friend. And it's basically, friend, our translation, is a really bad translation. It's a generous translation of the Hebrew word, of the Hebrew words, ploni almoni. Ploni almoni. Can you guys say that with me? Ploni almoni. It sounds like, like an like a Italian dish, right, in some way. We're having ploni almoni tonight. Um, but it's actually, it's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. So Hebrew is the original language this is written in. It's a Hebrew idiom that's only used two times in the Bible, twice in the Bible, and it actually means a muted name, a muted name. We would say, a better translation would be so-and-so, or John Doe, or some, this, this guy, this guy. The, the literal translation would probably be something closer to Mr. No Name, Mr. No Name, John Doe. The author specifically omits his name, which is a big deal. It's a big deal. He omits his name, and we might ask, well, why? Well, we're going to get back to that in a minute, because we're talking about suspense here. So we'll get back to that. But, but when did Mr. No Name show up? The text says, the just then, just so happened, just then. And I think that shows us that, that the right thing to do, 
Boaz, once again, could have done anything. He could have easily, by law, he wasn't really inclined to, to help this lady out. He could have done anything. He could have had any woman he wanted. He could have taken advantage of Ruth. He chose to do the right thing. He chose to do the right thing. But I think that also shows us, too, this just timing of this here in the story. God will help you do the right thing. God will help you do it. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be butterflies and rainbows and everything's going to be super easy, but God will help you do the right thing. You know, and there's this continual dance in this story and in our lives between our action and God's action. And so we see that with Ruth and then now Boaz. And see, God is in the business of helping people do the right thing, even when the right thing is difficult, even when the right thing is hard. And let me show you just for a second another little Hebrew, a couple, a couple of Hebrew, we're going to learn some Hebrew today. But um, the, the, those words of, of just as, or just as it happened, are these words, um, hagasha pratis, hagasha pratis, and that's the Hebrew right there, if anybody reads Hebrew. Um, anybody read Hebrew, by the way? Anybody ever take a class or, or whatnot? So, um, yeah, okay, if you haven't, well, let me, let me just teach you. In Hebrew, unlike English, you read right to left. So you read backwards, you read like this. You read right to left. So everything is backwards. Like if you're going to go to the beginning of the book, you're going to go all the way, start back here and flip this way instead of going the other direction. In Hebrew, you read backwards. And you read right to left. And, and, and so I think just like when we read the providence of God in stories, in our story, it's just like reading Hebrew. It's best understood backwards. It's best understood backwards when we look backwards. Sometimes we have to flip backwards. We have to look backwards. That's, I think, the whole reflection of the story. I'm not sure if they realize it at the moment, but even in our stories, right, it's like reading Hebrew, seeing God's work in our lives. It's best understood backwards. You know, what might you need to read backwards from your current episode that you're not seeing right now? Maybe in a couple days, weeks, months, years, you read backwards and you see the providence just as the Hagasha protest that's happening before your eyes. It's about doing the right thing. What's the right thing to do? That's what sacrifice involves. But it also involves asking another question. Another really, really good question I ask myself a lot is what is in my hands and what's in God's hands? What's in my hands and what's in God's hands? Well, uh, a number of years ago, um, I was uh, planting a church in Virginia. We were starting a new church in the building of a dying church, and we had a team of people that were getting together, and like, how do you start a church? Like, you know, there were like 10 of us, and we wanted to connect with our community and reach more people and that kind of thing. Well, one of the ways we did that, and this is before we had like a Sunday worship service and that kind of thing, and I've shared this story with, with several of you, um, is that um, in October, the whole month, well, October, we would set up this great big tent in the yard of the church. And nobody get any ideas, please, because I'm scarred for life from this. But um, we, set, we set this giant tent up, and then we got a tractor trailer that came from Ohio and dropped off, I believe it or not, 40 big containers, pumpkins. I put that picture up, ready? Me and my happy face and my pumpkin hat. So we had 40 pallets of pumpkins. And this is called Pumpkin Fest. And so every October, every day, who was outside in Pumpkin Fest from 3 p.m. until 6.30 every day of the week and drinking my pumpkin spice coffee very, very happily there. 
But, but it was crazy that we would sell pumpkins and we had a little bounce house. And actually, our bounce house, believe it or not, actually came from that church. They were generous to donate it to us here at Table Life. Um, and so we, we just connected with people. It wasn't really about the pumpkins. It was about the people. We gave away pumpkins. We had kids coloring pumpkins. And we connected with, with so many people. And I remember I was out there in the sun. It was 90 degrees. I was out there when it was wet. I was out there when it was 35 and just shivering. I was out there the whole time. The whole time I'm thinking, why the heck am I doing this? Right? We don't even have a service yet. We don't even have people yet. Like, why am I doing this? Well, it was a good lesson for me that what is in my hands these days, these three and a half hours a day, what is in my hands to do the work that it's in my hands and let God do the work that's in his? See, faithfulness is our job. Fruitfulness is God's job. Faithfulness is your job. You be faithful. You know, you be faithful. That fruitfulness is God's. That's why it comes to us even here at Table of Life, that we're called to be faithful. God will be fruitful. You know, Boaz, he didn't know what was going to happen. He was at the city gate. He calls for 10 business leaders of the community to, to come and to settle this first order of business, which is the real estate, believe it or not. There's no mention of Ruth in this first part. No mention of Ruth. He mentions real estate, the inheritance law of the time. And so the story continues, verse 3 and 4. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you'll not, Tell me, so I'll know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. And what did he say? What was the guy's response? Mr. No Name, he says, I will redeem it, he said. See, he's speaking, Boaz is speaking the legal language of the Mosaic law, that, that a man's land at the time was the family business. Um, but what happened was Elimelech and his sons had died, so there's nobody to pass on the land to, the inheritance. It kind of reminded me, a number of years ago, there was this commercial on TV. I don't know if you all might be familiar. It's called Unclaimed Freight. Anybody watch that or remember? Anyway, it's not on anymore, but they would just like have unclaimed freight, like stuff that like, I don't know, people had left in places or whatever, and like these warehouses full of stuff, junk, right? And you would come, and I guess you would look around and buy it, you know, kind of like an estate sale and see what's happened. And so this was unclaimed freight here. This was unclaimed land. It probably had started growing weeds and was just like sitting there. Maybe people are like, whose land is that? Like, you know, when they're walking by. But basically, th this land, uh, while it was sitting fallow, it was, it was basically this Mr. No Name, he was first in line to inherit it because he was the closest related, that there weren't any other family members to pass it on to. And it's interesting that Boaz... He, he calls it Naomi's land. Let me just point that out. He calls it Naomi's land, which is really, really weird because nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in the whole Mosaic law are widows given inheritance rights. Nowhere. But Boaz, he's a man of standing. What does he do? He connects it to Naomi. He connects it to Naomi. And even today, if you travel around the world, Widows are not given inheritance what rights, which is why widows and orphans wind up on the street discarded by society. It happens everywhere that widows are not given inheritance rights. But, but Boaz, he's, he's clever here. He ties it to Naomi. He's known for character. He's known for his character. 
And a couple weeks ago, we talked about one of his relatives, Rahab, Rahab the prostitute. That was his kind of background. That was his mother. His mother was the prostitute who came to faith and started following the God of, of Israel, that she wound up saving the Israelites and the whole story of Jericho. You can read that in Scripture. But there's another relative, a grandfather of Boaz named Nashon. And we'll see this when we get to the, to the end of the whole genealogy here. He had a grandfather named Nashon who was the chief of Judah back in the time of Moses. He was the chief of Judah. He was a man of high standing. He was a general of the largest division in the army. But guess what he was known for? He was the first chief to offer sacrifices at the dedication of the temple. He was the first chief to offer sacrifices. He was known for his sacrifice. Boaz comes from a family who's known for their sacrifice. Boaz is like, like he's known as in the, in the, like the Kennedy family of today, right? Like if you're connected to a Kennedy, like there's a sense of like fame and fortune and, and, and just knowledge here. But, but he knows though, he knows the boundary of what's in his hands. So he takes initiative. He, he continues. He puts it in this guy's plate, on this plate. And what does the kinsman redeemer said? He said, Sure, I will redeem it. He presented it. And the story could have been over there. But there's one more thing. There's one more thing that you're forgetting. So Boaz continues. Boaz told him, of course, this little side note, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. So in other words, he's saying, the land comes also with a couple widows you got to take under your wing too, Right? One's an infertile Moabite woman that you got to marry, and the other is her grumpy old mother-in-law. Take them both. Take them both. You know, and, and yeah, we kind of chuckle at that, but, but isn't it true that the things worth the most in life off, always come with less attractive things in life? The things that are worth the most in life often come with the most unattractive, the less attractive things in life. Like, you talk about children, right? Children, like they're joy of your life. You know, you love these cute little babies and all. But they got yucky diapers and they scream and they keep you up all night, right? That's not attractive. Sometimes a, a meaningful job, a meaningful work, you have to have less attractive. It's less attractive to get a lower paycheck to do that. You know, even coming to church, being a part of a church community and serving. You know, we, we have people, they wake up early, believe it or not, on their weekend to get here and to practice in the morning and to set up coffee and to do, like, there's sacrifice involved. But it's worth it. There's a giving up that comes with less attractive things. You know, that, that, it's interesting that, that, that we're told in the scriptures that, that these people are told that they need to provide for widows and, and then, like, they need to help and do all these things. And, and, and so what would happen, though, in this case was that if this guy, he's thinking about this, the gears are going in his head, he's thinking about this, that if he gets married in this case then, and winds up having a child in this case, then guess who all the land goes to in this case? And everything that this guy owns, it goes to the son. It goes to the son. So basically, if he marries, if he takes this on, he's taking a big risk here. He's taking a big risk. He's taking a big risk because he wouldn't actually get to keep the land anyway. He would have to pass it on. He'd have to pass it on. And, and, but then there's a question, though, but why Ruth, right? What about Naomi? 
Naomi's the one that is the relative, that, you know, Ruth is just kind of married into the family, right? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the law, the law is no longer really relevant here because Naomi, she's older, she's past childbearing age. And so uh, really, in the truth of the matter, Boaz and Mr. No-Name, they could have walked away with a clear conscience at this point. But the spirit of the law is what matters the most. The spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, the spirit of the law said, save the family, that was the point of the law in the whole first place, was to save the family, that, that it binds the hearts of Yahweh's children and moves them to find a way to save this family. And so what Ruth was doing, looking back when Ruth first had that lunch around the table with Boaz, when Ruth went to his bedside, what Ruth was doing was volunteering herself as tribute in Naomi's place. She was sacrificing herself. And so Boaz we see here he finally gets it. And he's willing to step in the story as well. Because if he were to do that, the man that would do, would do this, you know what would go on the town records? Elimelech's family. Not Boaz, Elimelech's family. The town records would show the inheritance going to Elimelech, and this, this person of Boaz, this person of Ruth, would be completely skipped over out of record. That's what they're giving up here. And so what's this guy's reaction, the kinsman redeemer? He hears all this, the gears are turning. He says, then I can't redeem it, the kinsman redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, Boaz. I cannot do it. Too much sacrifice. Too much. Mr. No Name thought that this episode in his story was titled A Really Bad Investment. Why would he do that? Well, going back to that question, why is he called Mr. No-Name, Mr. So-and-so, Floney Alimony? That's why the author omitted his name. Because this guy was more concerned about himself than honoring his family. Honoring his family, more concerned about himself than caring for widows, the very people that God had called his people to help. See, scholars, many scholar sources, um, criticize the men of Bethlehem for failing to act sooner. Because the land had been laying fallow for a number of months. Everybody knew that Elimelech had passed. Nobody did anything until Boaz stepped on the scene. See, this, this whole situation here, that this man is ultimately more concerned for his own safety and about what he could lose. Don't we do that? You think about, what could I lose? What could I lose? He's unwilling to trust God. And you know what even shows that more about his relationship with God? is that, it, once again, Ruth was barren. She had not had children at this time. You know, we don't know the number of years that she was married. There was a good chance that she would never conceive. And in that case, Mr. No Name, if he married her, he would be fine. He would take on the land and have the inheritance. But I think another, another reason why he decided not to go ahead with it was because he's realizing God is shaking things up here and there's no telling what could happen. There's no telling that she might actually get pregnant and have a son. That God is doing something in the midst here, and so he's not willing to trust God because it's too costly and it doesn't line up with the story he wants to write with his life. See, he's not an evil man. He made a culturally acceptable response to a very difficult choice. But I think he asked, makes us ask the question, what is too much for me? What is too costly for me? It may look culturally acceptable, but don't we want it all, right? We want the finances, we want health, we want to be right, we want intimacy, we want time with God, we want to be generous, we want lots of friends, we want all these things. 
we want to hold it like this. You know, just like Mr. No Name, Loney Almoni, maybe you're afraid of what God could do if you let it go. Maybe you're afraid. And so sometimes I think the truth is that sometimes we don't want God to redeem anything. We don't want his redemption because we think we have the better story to write. We don't want God to enter into the story and to do something with us, and that means sacrifice, and so be it. See, what does Boaz do? He looks at the bigger story. That's the question. Will I trust in God's bigger story? And so this section wraps up here. It says, so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And what did he do? He removed his sandal, right? That was like the custom at the time. So I don't know if you want to do that when you make the next business deal, take note. But then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I bought from Naomi. Think about that again. He's pointing to her. Bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name, not my name, his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. See, friends, in Cinderella stories, this is the moment that the glass slipper fits, the fairy godmother appears, and the happily ever after takes place. But if we interpret it as that only, we're doing a terrible, terrible disservice to Boaz and to Ruth and to the power of the gospel. Because the story is not about what they're getting. It's about what they're giving up. It's about their sacrifice. Boaz is not fulfilling Ruth's dreams and completing her happily ever after. Moments ago that Mr. No Name, he gulped at the price tag of, of this situation. He refused to redeem it out of what he would lose. And he was right. Because there's a cost. There's a cost. But that was the only thing he saw. See, sometimes... We, as human beings, we get so focused on the present moment, and the only thing we see is loss, and we stop there. What if there was something different? What if there was a different story that God was writing? There's a, a story of a, uh, in World War II, there was a chaplain who was ministering to a soldier who was in the hospital, and he wanted to encourage this soldier because he was there lying in the bed after he had fought the Nazis and so the chaplain said to the man, he said, you have lost an arm in such a great cause. And the soldier replied, I didn't lose it. I gave it. I gave it. It's a different perspective, a bigger story, a bigger timetable, not ours, but in God's. And see, there's a rescue operation happening in Bethlehem, but it's not for Ruth. It's for Elimelech. The story of rescue, Elimelech, the black sheep, the one who went to Moab to save his own skin over that of his, his family and over that of his village, who abandoned Bethlehem to go do what he had wanted to do. Elimelech, who in the eyes of the community was a lost cause, who disobeyed God, who didn't do anything right. But Ruth and Boaz jump into the lost cause anyway. That's the story of God's grace. That's the story. They're mobilized for rescue as God's image bearers to join God's saving grace in the world. Invitations of God always involve sacrifice. Always involve sacrifice. And as we kind of close this section, this is not the end, by the way. We go on next week and kind of wrap things up here. But invitations of God always involve sacrifice. Why? Because in the story of Scripture, sacrifice always brings new life. Brings new life. 
In the Old Testament scriptures, in the Old Testament times, people would sacrifice animals in order to be redeemed, to be made right with God. We don't have to do that anymore because in the story of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made was a story of good news. Why? Because it brings new life. God so loved the world, he gave his son Jesus, enduring sacrifice for broken humanity. But it was not the end of the story, because on the third day, there was the empty tomb, and he was brought back to life. Sacrifice brings new life. Forgiveness of sins, new life here and now, as well as into the promise of eternity with him. And we're called to be living sacrifices. That's what Paul says. Living sacrifices. So what's an invitation God's place in front of you. There might be a costly one. Might be one that, to give up something that's important to you. But you might not be able to have it both ways. But I want to go back to those questions. What is the right thing to do? And will you trust God to help you? What's in your hands? And what's in God's hands? And will you believe in trust in the bigger story? So for you today, just as we go to the table... As we seek God's grace, what is it right now that seems impossible that you need to surrender to God? Let's pray.